0: Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This was the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
1: Uh, Would you join me once more in prayer? Uh, Father, we know that you are a speaking God, and we know that you have a word for us. So this morning... Uh, whatever our hearts, our attitudes, our minds may be on, uh, would you speak to us? Would you renew us? Would you show us light and life, the light and life we have in your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Uh, A few years ago, I was interviewing a middle-aged woman uh, for baptism. Uh, This woman had just immigrated uh, to the United States from China, And she started to attend church for the very first time. And upon hearing the gospel, the good news that salvation is found only in the work of Jesus Christ, she was ready to make public profession and to be baptized. Now, knowing this backdrop, I wanted to probe a bit deeper just to make sure she understood her faith commitment. So, during this interview, after going through a few things, I, I start to ask her more personal questions. I asked, is your allegiance to Jesus or to the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping? She answered, it's to Jesus. Now, that was just a setup for the real question, because at this point in her life, I knew that she had very little concern for communism but was much more obsessed with capitalism and the ability to make money in the free market. This woman was a businesswoman in China, and she came to the United States with even greater ambitions of becoming wealthy. In fact, at that time, and even still today, a lot of of the middle class in China, uh, they care more about capital than they do about the CCP. So I asked her what I really wanted to ask. I said, is your allegiance to Jesus or is it to capitalism? You came to America with the hopes of making money and lots of it, but before that, before anything, you found Jesus. What if Jesus is all that you find here in America? Is he enough? Is that enough? Is the gospel enough? She said, yes, Now, I would have questioned the sincerity of her answer if it wasn't for what she said afterwards. After saying yes, she said, Pastor, China is no different than America. We're obsessed with money just as much as you are. And then she said, while my commitment is to Jesus, surprisingly, I see that people in the church still worships money. Today I was left speechless because here she was a new Christian in a new country, having heard the gospel not so long ago, but she seemed to have a better grasp of it than most of our church members. Now, church members, not you, because this was a different church. From then on, after this interview, we started to talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What does it mean? When we say that Jesus is our Lord and our King, what does it mean when we say that Jesus is Lord over my life and the world? We started to talk about how the gospel disrupts our lives, how it changes our value systems, and yet, at the same time, how it leaves us so satisfied and so fulfilled. It was one of the most memorable baptism interviews I had ever been a part of. We didn't just recite all the right answers. We didn't just say, yes, I'm a sinner, Jesus died for me, He went to the cross, He rose again. We didn't just recite all these answers, but we started to talk about what that means and how the truth ought to transform our lives. This is what Paul calls the power of the gospel. When we say something has power, we, say, we mean that it has the ability to change, to impact, to affect. That's what power is. And this is what we've been seeing throughout Acts. What happens when the gospel is proclaimed? We see impact, change, transformation, disruption, wherever and whenever the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. We find that it changes individual lives as we saw in the case with the Ethiopian eunuch. We see it threatens and challenges the status quo of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It impacts the Jewish community and how it accepts Gentiles. And today, in this passage in Acts 19, we'll see how the gospel challenged the idols of the entire city, turning its culture and its economy upside down. There are just two points that I want to go over as we look at today's passage. These two points are, first, the gospel's relevance, and second, the gospel's disruption. The gospel as being relevant and the gospel as being disruptive. In Acts 19, we read that God was doing outward signs and miracles of healings, so much so that even the handkerchiefs that touched Paul had healing power. Read with me verses 11 and 12. This is what it says. In the next slide, it says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. See, this is how the gospel came to Ephesus. Now, reading this, you might be wondering, why doesn't this happen in every city? And why does not happen, why doesn't this happen now? See, there's something about Ephesus that you have to understand. Ephesus, back then, was a city with a distinguished magical pedigree. Most notably in Ephesus was something called the Ephesia Grammata, which translates literally uh, the words of Ephesians or the sayings of Ephesians. And this saying was actually six well-known words— that people believed to have some sort of magical power. These words were inscribed on important monuments. Uh, I have a picture of the uh, Temple of Artemis, uh, the now temple, what remains of it. But back during Paul's time, the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world, and everyone came to see it, and inscribed on the temple and on the statue uh, were these six magical words. The people in Ephesus recited these words thinking that the incantation of them would have magical effects. We also find in today's passage a number of people practicing magic or sorcery, most notably the seven sons of Sceva. So, there's a city that is known for their magical pedigree, and when the gospel comes to the city, how does it come? It comes with outward signs of great power and even greater healing. See, this gives us a window into how gospel ministry works. When Paul goes to Athens, how is the gospel presented? Rationally, logically, with arguments. Why? Because intellect was the idol of that town. When the gospel goes to Jerusalem... What does it confront? How does it dialogue and converse? It converses with the practices and the customs of Judaism. Why? Because that was the center of all of life. When the gospel goes to the Jews, how does it go? Well, Paul, he enters into the synagogue, the place where Jews gather, and he reasons with them. From what? From Moses and the law. When it comes to Ephesus, this Gentile city, that's filled with magic and sorcery, the gospel manifests itself through outward signs because the culture of that city was heavily influenced by magic. See, we find that throughout Acts, wherever the gospel goes, the work of the Spirit is never stale. You see, the Spirit doesn't just cookie-cut it doesn't replicate the same method and the same ideas over and over again. The Spirit of God doesn't recycle the same works wherever it goes. Instead, at every location, to every people, the Spirit brings the gospel fresh, addressing the current idols of that town, those people, and it brings disruption to the present situation. You know, one thing that never happens in Acts is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is never dismissed as being irrelevant. It will incite riots, or it will bring about faith. It will bring about persecution or commitment. Everyone finds the gospel to be relevant and intriguing. Even kings and rulers listen to it intently. The gospel was never dismissed as irrelevant or stale. It was never considered old news. It was good news to some and a stumbling block to others. This is how the gospel works. Wherever it goes, it addresses the people, the situation, the idols of that place. And the Spirit works through that. You know, while the Spirit is innovative, contextual. You know, I often find that we as Christians and the church, we are so unimaginative and we lack creativity and relevance in how we engage in gospel ministry. Remember, the Spirit is never stale. The Spirit never recycles the same methods over and over again. But I find that we, as the church and Christians today, you know, we keep thinking about what worked in the past, We're fixated on how the gospel changed my life in the past. And what we often try to do is we try to replicate that in our lives and in the lives of others today. We're completely blind to the fact that we have new idols and we are in need of gospel ministry in new areas of our lives today. We're blind to that and we often just try to get back to that place, the place years ago, And to feel what we felt then, and to do what we did back then. You know, our lives are completely different now than it was 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. But often I find that as Christians, we long to go back to that time, that moment where the Lord was really working in our lives. We want to go back to when we were in college or as a young adult, we want to go back to some time in the past, some conference, some moment where we felt God's presence. And we often try to replicate that. You know, in that case, you have to wonder, as Christians, are we seeking renewal or are we just after nostalgia? You know, I'm guilty of this myself. Whenever I find myself in a spiritual slump, I try going back to the greatest hits, you know, things that worked for me in the past. You know, I try going back wondering, would God do the same? And so I try to visit the same places, maybe sing the same songs, read the same passages. But, you know, I think today's passage reminds us that God, He doesn't do the same work in us Instead, He does a new work in us. You know, the reason why God doesn't do the same work in us today as He did 10 years ago is because we have new idols in our lives today. We have new sins in our lives today. We have new needs in our lives today. We are in new circumstances and new situations, and we shouldn't try to replicate past grace but instead we should seek renewal through new grace it's a lot like bread right bread is always best when it's fresh no matter how good yesterday's bread was it doesn't beat fresh bread today At Ephesus, the gospel comes with outward signs of power and healing. Why? Because that was the best way for gospel penetration. It's what the town needed. You know, Paul could have simply said, you know what, this is the 15th city in about five years. I've done this. I know exactly what to do. And he could have tried to create, it some, he could have tried to create some sort of model and try to replicate that over and over again. But instead, no, what does Paul do? He goes to a city and he understands how the Spirit works. He sees the idols. He sees the needs. And the Spirit begins to work mightily in that way. The gospel comes with relevance. There was never a time where the people said, you know what, that worked in Patmos. It's not going to work in Cyprus. That worked in the city over there, but come on, we're different people. No, wherever the gospel went, it would come with freshness with relevance, with power. You know, I want you to think about this. If the gospel came anew to Montgomery County, the county that we belong to, that this church is in, if the gospel came anew here, how do you think it would be delivered? Where should we go to deliver it? How should it be delivered? What relevancies and idolatries with the gospel combat if it came anew to this town. We find that the gospel, whenever it's proclaimed, it's proclaimed in a manner that's relevant. It addresses the idols and the situations of the day. As the gospel is presented to you this morning, what grace should you be seeking? What renewal should you be seeking? How is it that you should be earning or yearning for God to address the idols in your life? This passage speaks of the gospel's relevance. A second, as we move on, it, it speaks of the gospel's th- disruption. In Ephesus, once the power of God is made manifest, the people who practice magic, they respond accordingly. This is what it says in verses 18 and 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. You see, the gospel is not just relevant, but it's relevant for a purpose, and that purpose we find, is disruption. As the gospel addresses the idols in their lives, in our lives, the result should be upheaval and replacement. The idols that we once held on to, because from it we thought we could attain life, value, and meaning, they become displaced by Jesus, the very author and redeemer of our lives. See, as the people heard of Jesus, who He is and what He had done, they transact. They say, you know what? I don't need this anymore. I have found the true God who gives life and meaning and value to all. And what they do is these people come and they start burning the scrolls through which they had practiced magic. Now, the, the verses actually tell us that they had burned 50,000 pieces, or, or they had burned scrolls that were worth up to, uh, that were worth that had the value of about 50,000 pieces of silver. And in today's currency, uh, that's about 150 years' worth of labor. So estimate that around maybe 7 to $10 million. Now, here, imagine the people are, you know, after hearing the good news, not so, you know, not so long ago, the the people who practice magic, they gather together. And the city that was known for its magical pedigree The city whose whose economy was built around this, these people come together, and they take their scrolls and their books, and they start to burn it. And it's like burning an original piece of Monet in public, right in the city center. Now, this wasn't forced or suggested, We can tell that what Paul does is he doesn't say, listen, you need to burn these things, you need to get rid of these things before you accept Jesus. No, as Paul spoke of Jesus, of who He is, His glory, His beauty, and His wonder, this act of burning, of getting rid of their idolatry, was a natural response to their profession of faith in Jesus. As they heard of the God who created the world, who loved the world, and who gave His only Son for the world, as they heard of this Christ who died and rose again for the sinful world. Their idols were naturally confronted, their idols were inevitably disrupted, and their idols were ultimately laid down because they had found Jesus. Why do I need this if I have Jesus? You know, as a, as a modern-day Christian, whenever, you know, as I read this and see the value that is just going up in flames and smoke and just dissipating into the air, you know, you can't help but notice, man, wh- why did they do this? Couldn't they have done something else with it? I want you to notice that the people, they don't attempt to sell their books in hopes of giving it back to mission work. The people's aim here is not to maximize profit. The people here are not opportunistic, thinking, how can we now create opportunities so that more people can hear the gospel? That's not what they're thinking. But simply, these people, as they have confessed Jesus, their aim is to simply worship Jesus as Lord in their lives. And that is an important distinction. Their aim was not how can we maximize the opportunity to see potentially Jesus being worshiped as Savior and Lord. That's not their aim, but it was how can we worship and serve Jesus as Savior and Lord now. It's a slight difference, but do you see the difference? They weren't thinking how can we maximize opportunity, but it was how can we serve Jesus as Lord now. Too often when speaking with Christians, I find that we miss the mark in this way. You know, we as Christians, we have noble goals, noble kingdom goals. We talk about where we want to be in 20 years. We talk about how we want to serve the Lord in 10 years. We talk about when situations change, this is what I'll be doing, this is my future call, and we live our lives trying to maximize the opportunity to see potentially Jesus be glorified. We're so driven by that that we often fail to see that Jesus is Savior and Lord now. He's Savior and Lord now, not in 15 years when your children are all raised and in school, not in three years when you're finally done with grad school, not in 10 years when you finally get a chance to settle down. We often sell Jesus' bonds with the promise of future redemption. We write him a check, say, here, don't cash it in just yet. In five, ten years, when the situation is different, as I'm maximizing my opportunity, this is what I will do. You see, we got it all wrong. see, Jesus doesn't want the maximized version of you. But he wants you as you are now. We often think, I'm going to set up my life. I'm going to get everything situated so that finally when it's all done, when it's said and done, I can maximize service to you to potentially bring as much glory as I can to you. But you see, when we do that, we confuse Jesus with our idols. Jesus doesn't want our plans. He doesn't want our future commitments said, He wants you now. He wants you now. You now I remember when I was young, I was watching uh, daytime television, and it was this show about, you know, uh, this, this person who was, uh, you know, a guy or girl who, you know, they were unpopular in high school, they were, um, they weren't physically attractive, and they, they had liked this other person, and of course, they were rejected. And so this person goes on, you know, trying to become the best version of himself or herself, right? They, they study hard to, to be successful in life. They, uh, you know, they work on their physical attributes, and they, they, come, they have this Gatsby-like uh, obsession to come back and try to impress the other person. And on this daytime television show, you know, they would bring the person on and, you know, they would show pictures of this person who had liked him or her and they would talk about it and all of a sudden he or she would come out and it would be this huge surprise. And, of course, it it would sort of end with this person saying, you know what, I accept you now. I'll be interested in you now. You know, I'll give you the time of day now. You know, when it comes to serving Jesus as Savior and Lord, you know, we have this idea that, you know what, once I maximize who I am, my life, my career, whatever situation I am, then I would be able to go and give wholeheartedly to the Lord. But that is not who Christ is. Christ died for you in your brokenness as you are now. That means He desires you as you are now not in three years when you finally finish school, not in 10 years when you're finally settled down, not in 15 years when you're done raising your children, but in whatever meek and meager way now, He desires you. Don't we see this and don't we do this in very small ways? We find, God, you know what, I I don't have time to pray but I'm going to work really hard so that, I'm going to, so that one day I'll have hours just to spend intimacy with you. Our Lord doesn't desire that. He wants you now. Whether it's 30 seconds, five minutes, He wants it now. He seeks and desires, and He loves you as you are now. You see, these people who are there with, with you know, their livelihood on the line. They don't say, you know what, how can we sell this? How can we maximize profit? How can we get rid of this so that the gospel can go forth and all of Asia can be converted? That's not their intention. Their intention is, how can we serve Jesus as Lord now? And so what they do is they they burn these scrolls because for them, that was their way of worshiping Jesus. Now, and ironically, what happens through that act, as these people are worshiping Jesus as Lord, the passage tells us the word of the Lord increased. And the gospel continued to prevail. See, it's not what they did, the means and the methods they took, but it's their service to Christ as Lord that increased the word of God. If you look further on, as, as these people are now committing themselves and giving themselves to the Lord, it, it creates a, a cultural upheaval. The passage later on tells us that there's a silversmith na- named Demetrius, and he sees that people are coming to Christ, and they're no longer purchasing these idols that, he cra- that he's crafted. And so he calls the people together, and he appeals to them. He says, listen, the gospel is messing with our livelihood." The business that we have created is now we're losing profits. He appeals to the finances of the town, and then he says later on, listen, if this continues to happen, do you know what's going to happen to our city? We're a city where people come we're to see the temple of Artemis. He appeals to civic culture and responsibility. As the gospel is proclaimed in Ephesus, we find two different types of responses. Demetrius, who finds that the gospel is now affecting his pocketbook. And we find these other magicians who are willing to give up everything, their livelihood, because they had discovered Christ as Lord. Do you see the way in which the gospel is presented? Do you see the way in which the gospel presented? Is working in this city. It creates a a divide. Either you understand the worth and the value of Jesus and what He has done, or you find it to be threatening to you and to your plans. You know, whenever I speak with uh, Muslim converts, I find that they often get it right, Because their lives, their culture, their background is so different from Christianity, when they become a Christian, so much of their lives are transformed. Often, they are disowned by their parents. They're ostracized from their community. They change uh, their culture, their their diet. They change so much about their lives. And when they come to grips with this, you know, I often find that Muslim converts— they understand the transforming and disrupting nature of the gospel. You know, when we compare that to us, you know, we think that we are a Christian culture and a Christian nation, that the gospel just comes and conveniently just slides into our lives, and we think that it's a good fit. And if that's the case, if there is no gospel disruption in your life, I think we've missed the point on what the gospel does. So let me end today's message by going back to the original question, but making it more personal. If the gospel comes afresh to you this morning, how is it relevant? What idols would it address? And what disruption will it bring? You know, all of us, we have something where we say, you know what, Jesus, you can be Lord over everything except for this one little thing. This, I cannot have you Lord over. And until the gospel actually comes face to face with that, until the gospel actually transforms that, we have misunderstood or we've missed the point entirely. The city of Ephesus was, in some ways, like a New York. It was a financial hub. It was uh, an an economically robust city. They had tourism and magic and all sorts of things where people flocked to. And as the gospel comes into this city, what it does is it it transforms it. it It flips it upside down. And as the people come to grips with that, there are two responses. Jesus is Lord or He's messing with my life. Which of the two is it for you this morning? Would you see Jesus as beautiful and glorious? And would you submit to him as Lord and Savior? Join me in prayer at this time.